0: can be seated. And if we have any kids with us this morning, you guys can meet at the back of the sanctuary here, and we will send you off up to children's ministry. Very good. So uh, uh, this morning as I open up, I just want to, I want to tell you about uh, something I kind of always understood, Uh, even from the time that I was very little, uh, and, and it even has nothing really to do with whether or not I was a Christian. Something that I always understood was that I am fighting against myself. Like, I, there, there's something about me that keeps getting in my way. Uh, and you might have this experience, too. So, uh, so I started seeing this when I was a really young kid, and I, I saw it first in kind of my curiosity. Uh, I would get really interested in things that, like, I wasn't supposed to touch, and things that I wasn't supposed to see, and, so, and like things that I was supposed to just stay away from, right? And, and so I would, I would be like, well, that thing that you told me I'm not supposed to go to, I'm really interested to know what it is and what the deal is with it and why I can't go to that thing. And so, so I would often end up like breaking things, uh, doing things like, yeah, you know, I, I would create some difficulty for myself. That, that was kind of what happened. And so, so I get myself into trouble with this curiosity thing. All right, so that's one piece. Another piece. Uh, so I played sports when I was a kid, and, um, I had, I had a little bit of talent. I had some pretty good reflexes, right? Like, these, these were two things that were working in my favor, playing sports, but, uh, in my playing of sports, I, I had a, a lack of consistency and a lack of focus, so, so when I would, I, I, I might have great reflexes like in the moment, but the problem was is I had trouble applying that over the long haul, right, and so my lack of focus, my lack of consistency, uh, my, I had a little bit of a lack of aggression too, like all of these things kind of created difficulty for me when I was trying to play sports, and so whatever skills I did have, would get squashed by the fact that like, I just wasn't consistent. I didn't have the focus that I should have. So, so I worked against myself a little bit there. Uh, I would also notice as a kid, um, I talked about people in my life a lot um, to other people. Behind those people's back. So I gossiped as a kid, right? And this is not just something that adults do, this is something that everybody does. Like, we talk about people behind their backs. And then sometimes, like crazy, if you talk about people enough, eventually those people will hear that you're talking about them. And uh, that created problems for me relationally, right? That created some difficulty for me when I did that. It got me into trouble. Uh, My intellectual pride got me into a whole lot of trouble because I would think. With clarity that I knew something, and I would argue with a person about the rightness of what I knew, like I was convinced that I was right, and then uh, you know lo and behold, that person would prove to me that I was wrong, and then that would create like a difficult situation for me right so so uh, I, I also had this uh, this desire to be accepted and liked by my, my friend group, by the people that I was around, and so that actually caused me to do some things and and try to be something that I wasn't, right? Like, all of these experiences actually showed me something. They showed me that constantly, I am like my own worst enemy. I keep getting in my own way. I keep causing problems for myself. And I didn't have to be a Christian to understand that I caused problems for myself, right? This is just a reality of the human experience. Like, we are consistently fighting against things that are inside of us, different aspects of our nature, all of us. But something that did become apparent to me after I became a Christian, so now that I've become a Christian, is the extent to which this is true, like the extent to which we actually are our own worst enemies. So, so while I knew that, yes, um, yeah, these things that I was doing, I'm inconveniencing myself in some ways, like I'm creating some barriers for myself, Right? The more that I grew as a Christian, I actually realized that that this is not just inconvenience, but the Bible says it's like self-destruction. Like, these are not personal obstacles that just stand in my way, but, but these are patterns that are innately opposed to God's good created order for things. Like, this is not just gossip that creates relational problems for me, but this is actually, like, in me, this is a lack of love for an image bearer, like somebody who bears God's image on their soul. This is not just pride that thinks too highly of myself. This is like my inability, my lack of recognition for my place before a holy God. Like that's what all of these things are. And so, so I don't understand that I'm just like working against myself. I'm just inconveniencing myself. But there's like a level of depth to the ways that I like wage war against myself. So the more I, I realized this, the more I started to see that yes, I, absolutely, I am my own worst enemy. I am working against myself in significant ways. And and I don't just need like little small corrections to fix those things, but actually what I need is like an entire system overhaul with what's going on inside of me. So in your Bibles this morning, we're in First Peter, we're in the book of First Peter, we're uh, in chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 11 and 12. And so as you, as you open your Bibles up to that place, as you uh, get there, I just invite you to listen up this morning. This is, uh, this is what I want us to understand, every single one of us, is at war. We're all at war, and how we fight matters. We're all at war, and how we fight matters. So it's important to Peter, like he, he's letting his audience know this, it, it's important to Peter that his audience understands this because they've been kicked out of their homes. They have been exiled. They've been sent away. In fact, he calls them sojourners and exiles in verse 11. Like, you, they, they don't have a home. They don't have a place to belong to. Like, the heat has kind of been turned up in their lives a little bit. And so when you've been kicked out of your home, you know what's going to be really tempting to do? It's going to be really tempting to, like, be angry at the people who kicked you out of your home. When you're being mocked and ridiculed by people around you, you know what you're going to really want to do? You're not going to want to love your neighbor. You're actually going to want to hate your neighbor. Like that's going to be what you're inclined to do. So uh, when your comfort gets taken away from you, you know what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to try to fill the void that's left with a bunch of other false comforts to try to 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 dig into that, right? So you're going to want to seek after things that that make you feel better. You know, when things get hard for Christians, what happens is that are actually like our old ways of operating, because we have some old ways of operating, our old procedures. They're gonna, it's gonna be really tempting to revert back to those old ways. And so he actually talks about like who they used to be in verse ten. So in the verse immediately preceding verse eleven, this is what he says. He says, "Hey, guess what? Once you were not a people, like once you didn't have an identity. But now what? You guess what? You do have an identity. You're God's people." Once you hadn't received mercy you had not received mercy but guess what you have an identity now as those who have received mercy and so he recognizes Peter sees that hey when the pressure gets turned up it's going to be really tempting you're really going to want to revert to your old patterns you're going to want to revert to your fleshly habits to your addictions to being controlled by your feelings. You're going to want to revert to lashing out at people instead of loving them. You're going, to re, you're going to revert to like striving to take what you think you deserve. You're going to revert to devaluing other people. You're going to revert to, to prioritizing your preferences over everything else. And so, so Peter looks at this situation for these people that he's writing to and he, he sees the possibility of the things that they might turn to as the heat gets turned up for them. The harder things get, the more tempting, of course, sort of these old ways of operating are going to become for them. And so, so this is what Peter wants for them. He wants for them to be, like, really clear-headed in the middle of this situation. And so he reminds them of two things. He reminds them of why it is that they fight and why it matters that they fight well. Those are the two things he reminds them of. So why do we fight? Verse 11 says this. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. So who do exiles think that their enemy is? Well, the people who made them exiled. The people who kicked them out of their homes. The people who chose to exclude them. The people who enslaved them. The people who oppressed them. Like when, when exiles think of their identity as exiles and they think, if I have an enemy, it's the person who made me exiled, Right? And there's a tendency for us to think, you know, when our existence is threatened, that, that the people threatening our existence are the enemy. And, and you know what? It's going to be really tempting for these exiles, as they've been kicked out of their homes, to think that the people who kicked them out of their homes are the enemy. And Peter clarifies really quickly for them, like, they're not the enemy. That's not where the challenge actually exists. And this is why I'm concerned, actually, about so much of the rhetoric that I see in our culture today. Because some of of the rhetoric, especially as Christians, you know, we get more and more taken away from us. Our, Our rhetoric appears to be, how dare they do that? They're fighting against us, and we can create a perception amongst us that our enemy is out there in the world somewhere. And this is this us versus them rhetoric it's it's not helpful for us in the public square but uh, but Peter actually what he wants to do is he wants to reorient their attention he wants to take their attention away from what those people out there are doing and then what he does is he turns their attention inside themselves. He says you know what our biggest battle is not actually with them. The battle the biggest battle that we have to fight is not out there. They're not the enemy. In fact, we fight different enemies. Uh, and, and in another place in Scripture, Paul says that, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? That there's actually like a spiritual enemy that we have. Now, that's not, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a different kind of enemy. But the point is, we don't. Our enemies are not actually out there. We have different kinds of enemies. And one of those enemies that we have is actually within us. Like, we are our own worst enemy, so like I, like I mentioned earlier, we all, every person, we know that we fight against ourselves. But what's not really clear to us is uh, what exactly is it in ourselves that we're fighting against, and then why do we fight that thing? Why do we fight that thing? And so Peter's going to clarify that for us, and this is what he highlights. He highlights the passions of the flesh. So I want to talk about the threat of... Of our flesh, for just a second, uh, the, the Bible uses the word "flesh to just refer to our old person, our old ways of operating right so whenever we see this word like the flesh in scripture it 's telling us about hey these are these are like all the ways the self gets in the way of glorifying God, right, and so we need to make sure that we kind of dig that stuff out of us. we need to make sure that we die to ourselves to die to the flesh, to get rid of the flesh and the influence that it has in our lives and so so our influence, our existence is actually threatened by our desires and passions. And, and this is how passions work. What they do is they're, they're initially attracted to something that is probably really good for us. Like our passions get attracted to something that, that could in, in several ways seem good to us, but then our passions, they, they, they start to overemphasize certain things. They start to give things more priority than they ought to, and then actually what they do is they get us into trouble. So, uh, so imagine we're fish, and uh, fish, like as fish, like the fish see food in the water, and food is good for fish. F- fish are supposed to eat food, right? So, so like they go up to the food, and it's like that food is really shiny, and it looks really good to them, and they, so they start digging into that food, and they dig a little deeper, and they dig a little deeper, and all of a sudden, they have a hook in their cheek, and that hook is kind of pulling them wherever they want to go, right? And this is, this is how our passions work. Like, our passions dig deeper and deeper into something until we've been hooked, and then they kind of take us wherever they want to take us, right? And so that's the threat that these things have on our souls, and the reality is, whether we're Christians or we're not Christians, uh, we recognize the threat of our passions. We all see, like, the threat of these things inside of ourselves that get too attracted or too attached to something, and we know that we need to fight against them because they can get us into trouble. And... By the way, like, this is why good people exist that aren't Christians. Like, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person, right? Because it's socially, like, important to be a good person, right? So there's, like, and and if you're not a good person, like, you have have to restrain certain things. You have to hold certain things back in yourselves. Like, it's important to try to value others in our society. Like, if you want to do anything good in this society, you have to value other people you have to contribute to society in some way. Like, if you want to be recognized as important and helpful, like, you have to contribute to society. You have to do these things, and, and in order to do those things, you actually have to fight against passions inside of yourselves, right? We all see the value of this. But, but these passions, they're a much bigger threat than we often realize. They threaten more than just our stance in society. They threaten more than just the influence that we have with other people. But Proverbs fourteen twelve says this. It says, there's a way that seems right. That, that lure, that food that's sitting there in the water, it seems right. It seems good. It seems like I should have that thing. But its end is the way to death. The threat is much, much greater than, than we often realize. And so if that's the case, it actually means that, that we have to go about fighting the war a little bit differently. We actually have to, to fight this battle in a different manner. So Let's acknowledge something. Our non-Christian friends and neighbors, uh, they strive against the same things that we strive against. We all have these things inside of ourselves that, that we need to fight. And, and you know what? Our non-Christian friends and neighbors have developed a lot of useful tools for fighting against these things in ourselves. Like, this is why we have Dr. Phil and Oprah and uh, these talk show hosts, and Ellen is out there, and she's telling us how to, like, uh, get positivity in our life, right? And we have personality tests, right? They reveal uh, to us things about ourselves to help us better understand ourselves. We have pop psychology. Uh, You know what? A lot of people in the world develop some really good personal budgeting tools, right? That's one way that we fight against our passions in some way. We have financial advisors. We have personal trainers. We have 12 Step groups like the list could go on of all the things that we have. Like, we have numerous resources at our disposal to actually fight things inside of ourselves that are challenging us. And you know what, Christians actually like we benefit from these tools, we get a lot of a benefit from these tools. You know what, I love, I love, like, I find really helpful personality tests. I find personality tests to be like particularly instructive for me. So like, uh, I am on the Enneagram, if anybody knows what that is. I am a nine on the Enneagram. Uh, On the Myers-Briggs, I am an INFP, right? Like, and I've, these things have taught me so much about myself. And I know a lot of people are gonna appreciate this in here. I am high golden retriever with a little bit of otter, right? So we, some of us know what that means. Okay, good, good. So yeah, I I want to acknowledge that these tools, like they have value for us. They They can actually be a little bit helpful for us, but we need to acknowledge something else. You know, as, as Christians and non-Christians approach these realms of just what, how do we fight these things in ourselves, our reasons for fighting, like our reasons for abstaining are fundamentally different at the core. At the core, the reasons that we choose to fight and abstain are fundamentally different. So I want to tell you the non-Christian reason for fighting and abstaining in certain situations, it is this. It's self-preservation, self-promotion, and gratification. It could be any of those three. It could be all of those three at the same time. But, but, but the point is that at the core, you're doing something to protect yourself, something to promote yourself, or, or, or something just to give yourself some sort of pleasure. So Philippians 3.19 actually tells us about this motivation— when it's talking about people who are not following Jesus, this is what it said. It says, Their, ends, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their mind set on earthly things. Meaning, at the end of the day, like the thing at the core of this battle that they're fighting is still themselves. So even if they do good things, even if they are able to, to contribute to society in some manner, at the core, it's still about Self. And this is what they do. They wage war. This is their reason for waging war. They wage war to get themselves ahead. They wage war to get themselves ahead. So, so you know what? This actually, it does create people who can operate in society with very good morals, like a high moral standard. They treat other people well so that they can be treated well. You know, they, they, uh, they, you know it's good, like good and benevolent managers in society, those are a good thing, and people can be good and benevolent managers because you know what it means? Like it can get you promoted in your company, it can, uh, it can get you some level of status with those who report to you, you know, you follow, like we follow the law, like a lot of people follow the law in society, you know what you follow the law, you follow the law so you don't get thrown in jail uh, because, you know, you want to protect yourself. You do the di- so like at home, you know what, you do the dishes, like plenty of people like do the dishes, and some people choose to do the dishes, you know why? Because they don't want to make their spouse angry for not doing the dishes, like it's self-preservation, right? So at the end of the day, you know, people are doing good things, but, but the problem is, is that the reason they're doing good things, it, it can still be grounded in inherently selfish reasoning. I see you guys laughing here, you really related to that one, that's good, <laughs> that's good, that's good. So, uh, so, side note, this is, this is what religion actually does at its core. Go with me for a second. Religion says, I do certain things, and because I do certain things, God then does certain things for me, or the gods do certain things for me. It's about manipulation of the divine, right? So if I, can do, if I can perform certain actions, then I will get a certain reward in return, or I will avoid a certain punishment. Like, this is the core of how religion works. It hints on a primarily like, self-centered motivation. You know, so like Stanford, Stanford teaches business ethics. Like there are really like helpful courses that you could take at Stanford in, in business ethics. And do you know why Stanford teaches business ethics? It's because if you don't operate with ethical standards in business, you won't make any money, right? So, so there are certain standards that you have to abide by, and, and those standards kind of change according to how society moves, right? You have to do something to kind of stay relevant in society. And so this is why these courses are taught. And yes, there are, like, in those, in those ideas, there are good morals, it, but, but at the core, it's inherently about self-preservation, self-promotion, or gratification. So let's, let's talk then about the Christian reasoning for why we fight this battle. The Christian reasoning is a reflection of our identity as beloved. A reflection of our identity as beloved. In at the very beginning of verse 11 this is what it says he says he, he hits their identity one more time and he says beloved. He he calls out their name, he reminds them of their identity before he tells them to fight this battle, he reminds them what the battle is grounded in. Because actually what happens is this love that we experience is, as we as we were people who were once Sinners, once enemies of God, we actually experience God's approval for us, God's affection for us, and it does something to us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this. It says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Church, we wage war to get Jesus ahead. That is our reason for fighting this battle. So you know what, the the non-Christian might decide not to murder because, you know, murder would lead to jail time, murder might lead to some issues in their relationships around them, and so, so yeah, like, and it's a good thing to not kill people, right? We affirm that. Um, But you know, the Christian, the Christian actually fights the anger that leads to murder because Jesus says, love your enemies, and you know what Jesus did? He loved us while we were still his enemies, Right? The non-Christian, you know, the non-Christian might actually, like, decide not to commit adultery, like, and they, and they cho- choose to restrain this thing because uh, you, you would probably lose your spouse in that situation, right? So, so, but you know what the Christian does? The Christian actually fights against the lusts that lead to adultery, to keep dignity and respect for another human being at the forefront of their mind, because you know what Jesus did? Jesus kept dignity and respect, like, he gave us dignity and respect before the Father by his death on the cross. You know, the non-Christian could actually choose to be nice to their neighbor because being nice to your neighbor, it, it earns you favor in your community, right? That's an important thing to be aware of. But you know what the Christian does? The Christian actually fights to love their neighbor, even when it's inconvenient because Jesus loved us to the point of death on a tree. Right? This is why we fight. This is the core of why we actually fight this battle inside of us. It's because Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us, and and because of that reality, because there was no hope for us apart from the love of Jesus coming to us and offering us salvation and offering us approval before God, like we had no opportunity to be saved, but then Jesus came and he offered us the title of beloved. And so as a result, we want to see his rule extend over every single part of creation, even into the depths of our very souls. So the next question is, okay, that's, that's why we fight. The next question is, what is important about this battle that we fight? What is important about actually fighting it well? This is why it matters that we fight well. Verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day of visitation, the word conduct is literally the code by which you live your life, like the code by which the the the, the, the operating procedures that you have adopted for your standard of living. So so Gentiles, uh, when he's talking about the Gentiles, these are the people you know. People were kicked out of Rome. They got these Christians kicked out of Rome. They get kicked all over Asia Minor, what is now modern day Turkey. It's a uh, three thousand square mile area. This is where they live. You know who lives there? People who have zero context for what it means to follow God. People who have zero context for any idea of, like, what God's standards for behavior might be. Like, these are not Jewish people that they got spread among. These are Gentiles that they live among. People who have no concept for, for what it means even to be holy or what this thing called holiness is. It's all meaningless to them. And, and then on top of that, those Gentiles, they actually have their own code. They had their own way of living, their own standards that they obey. And the, the, the core of their code is actually something kind of like we make it up as we go, right? So, you know, the pagan gods, they care about certain things. One of the things that the pagan gods really care about is hospitality, right? And so that society cared a lot about hospitality. In order to be a moral person meant that you were to be hospitable, right? But, but then you know what the pagan gods also did? They kind of changed their standards for things a lot. Right? And so along with that, you get a bunch of uh, Gentiles and, and Greek people or Roman people who are changing their standards along with the, the gods. They're kind of making things up as they go. And so, so it, it's like you change things according to what is like, socially acceptable, what's relationally acceptable. Once something becomes acceptable, well, then we'll start to move in that territory and we'll claim that as what is moral. And this is why something like the, the Roman Colosseum, could actually, like, develop as a staple of entertainment in the ancient world. Like, where you actually get people who fight each other to the death, and you have thousands of people gathered around and looking in on this happening and laughing and just having a good time, right? That we, like, we acknowledge that. We say that's, like, deplorable, that's disgusting, right? But that, it was no problem for them. Like, it was socially acceptable, right? And so, so their code is just moving along with what is acceptable, there is nothing in society that is innately committed to human dignity or care for a neighbor. You know, the, their society, it, it kind of formed itself to whatever will allow humans to get what they want, right? With the least amount of consequences. So this is why it's actually like, it's a little ludicrous that we would say society defines morality. Like our culture gets to determine what is good and bad. Right, so let's talk, let's talk about Columbus Day for a second. Uh, Columbus Day was a few, a couple weeks ago. And um, we, we will look back on Columbus Day and we'll look at Christopher Columbus and we'll say Christopher Columbus did a whole lot of deplorable things to people. He did not do, so, he did, did some good things. And how could we have a holiday celebrating Christopher Columbus when he did all of these awful things? And the same people, like, now I, I will tell you, like, objectively, morally, there are some things that Christopher Columbus did that were absolutely like 100% not okay right so so let's let's say that but but the people who decry that the most on one hand on the other hand also want to say society determines our morals culture detorm- determines our morals so you're telling me that You're going to judge, like, Christopher Columbus for doing what he did, and at the same time, you want to say, my culture determines my morals. Well, you know what? Christopher Columbus's culture determined that what he was doing was actually, like, godly, was actually a good thing to do. Like, he was advancing, quote, the kingdom for his kingdom, his people. He was doing what was acceptable. So what gives your society the right to stand in judgment of his society? By what standard are you able to do that? So this is what we want to say. We actually want, we think our society has the right right to, to challenge all societies. There are societies around the world who are doing things that right now our society would deem as deplorable, but if society determines morality, who are we to say that that's deplorable? We actually, unless we acknowledge that there's a source of objective moral wisdom, of objective moral truth, we don't have any proper standard by which to to judge anything. So when genocide is happening across the world, without an objective moral standard, without a creator of morality, a creator of standards, we have no means by which we could look at that genocide and say objectively, that is wrong. So this this is what Peter is saying. In a society that determines and abides by its own standards... That's constantly changing according to popular thought. You know what you're going to do? You're going to abide by God's unchanging standard. You're going to abide by God's code. You are going to conduct yourselves honorably. Because you know what? You're not primarily concerned, like the people around you, you're not primarily concerned with self preservation. You're not primarily concerned with self promotion, and you're not primarily concerned with gratification. And guess what? This society that you live in where you try to do all those things, this place isn't your home anyway. You're exiles. You're sojourners. You have a home in heaven. And so you know what you're concerned with? You're concerned with promoting Jesus. You're concerned with proclaiming Jesus. You're concerned with pleasing Jesus. These are the things at the forefront. Now the reality is, as we do that, as we hold to that objective moral standard given to us by our Creator, That creates a response in the culture around us. So he goes on in verse 12 and he says, So that, he said, Keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's what's going to happen He's saying, They're going to speak against you, they're going to call you evildoers. Actually, this conduct, this code by which you live your life, it's going to put a target on you uh so this is what happens when we when we're born again when we place our trust and faith in jesus christ uh we become we're born into a new society we become a part of a new people we actually become a part of a new kingdom and so this this new birth actually puts something on us it puts this target on us so it's kind of like this and some of you might remember this picture as bummer of a birthmark how it's a picture of a deer Yeah, there we go. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. He's got a target on his chest, these two deer having a conversation. Uh, Our decision to abide by God's unchanging standard is really frustrating to the world around us. So frustrating that they might decide that they don't want to include us, that they want to exclude us, that they might choose to kick us out. But we need to remember, so we have to go back to our conversation about enemies. This is not about us versus them. So those who are putting the target on us, those who are choosing to make us a target, uh, we, we are not fighting against those people. The peop- the, actually, what we are fighting against is sin in our flesh. But you know what is going to happen? Whether we, we play that game or not, they are going to turn it into us versus them through their rhetoric, through their actions. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to play that game with them? Or are we going to actually keep our conduct honorable as we live amongst them? Because, you know what, if we choose not to play the game, if we choose not to defend our territory, if we, if we choose to actually engage like they engage, it, will actu- it, it could get easier for us. Um, but, but chances are, if we chose not to do it, it would actually get harder for us. You know, because we would be excluded. We will be reviled. We'll be called bigots. We'll be branded as Irrelevant. And for Peter's audience, you know what happened for them? They were thrown out of their homes. They had their, their jobs taken away. They, they, uh, they had rights taken away from them. Eventually, they were beaten and killed. Like, that's what happened. But, if we do, if we do actually keep our conduct honorable, if we love those who revile us, if we honor the basic human dignity of those who disagree with us, if we confess our wrongdoing to them, when we stumble in various ways, maybe it's in our attitude, maybe it's in our words. If we invest in the good of a city that's angry at us and doesn't want us around, then Peter indicates that something else can happen. This is what he shows us. He, he, he indicates that it's possible that people might actually see our consistency in a world of morals that rapidly change. People will actually see our love when we're hated. People will see our integrity when it costs us something. And those people might very well be led to ask the question, what is it that makes these people live so backwards? And then we have an opportunity to explain. You know, the love of Jesus controls us. Because we were once those who were without hope. We we were dead, that's what the Bible says, but Jesus gave us life. We had no choice at life, we had no chance at life, but Jesus offered it to us, and so his love compels us to love others. And then some of those people, Peter indicates, some of those people may actually come to know the very same Jesus that we know. He talks about the day of visitation, and they might glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation, that's uh, in, in biblical language, that's the day of judgment the day when Jesus is coming back to to judge the world. And, And what he seems to indicate is that as you live this way, as you fight this war inside of yourselves, people who once were destined to lose their souls because, you know, our passions are waging war against everybody's souls. So people who were once destined to lose their souls, they might actually be able to stand before God and be accepted and forgiven because of Jesus. And that's why we wage this war. That's why we fight against these things in ourselves. We wage war to get Jesus ahead. Okay, so what? So what? What are you fighting to win? Okay, so why do you fight for a good marriage? Like, okay, so world standard, uh, everybody's standard maybe. Happy wife, happy life, right? That's kind of like what I, that's the, the phrase that I was given. Happy wife, happy life. And that's a good thing. It is a good thing to have a happy wife. But, a better reason is because Jesus loves it when his glory is displayed through two people who love each other sacrificially so so then uh, maybe why do you why do you treat others with dignity in your workplace well it might be because you want peace in your workplace but there's a better reason it's because you know Jesus is concerned for uh, love for people who have the image of God inside of them can actually be reflected in a dark place, right? That's why it's important to, to treat others with dignity in your workplace. Now, now, I can be honest, like, I want a happy wife, okay? I want a peaceful workplace. Like, those are things that are valuable to me. But I also know that when I fight hard against these passions inside of me, Jesus is pleased, and Jesus shines through me. So when my concern to get him ahead is ultimate, I might actually be willing to fight harder in those things. Because it's not just about satisfying me and preserving me and protecting me, but it's about making Jesus happy and and pleasing him and promoting him. Okay, so so what are you fighting to win? That was the first one. The second one is this. Our hearts should break for the non-Christian who is fighting this battle. How sad is it to see a person fight a war that ultimately has no eternal value? You know, they're they're expending energy to protect themselves, to promote themselves, whatever it might be. And in, in the process, Scripture is clear. They lose their souls. They work to gain the world, and they lose their souls. But if they can actually see Jesus in us, in the way that we fight in ourselves, it, it, it's, it, it seems to indicate that our holy conduct, this is, and this is, just to be clear, this is like not just like not doing certain things. Like this is not just like making sure you don't uh, use curse words and that kind of stuff. No, this is much more expansive than that, right? This is about fighting to love people like Jesus loved. That kind of holy conduct, it actually indicates that 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 conduct is powerful enough to lead people who have no context for our faith, no understanding, to actually lead them to salvation in Jesus. That's the reason we fight. And so that's why it's valuable to actually like dig and fight and work against these things inside of ourselves so that people might see and come to know Jesus. Would you pray with me please? Lord Jesus, would you just indicate to us the kinds of things that you want to do? Lord, each of us ha- has different ways that passions show up in our lives. Lord, we each have different things in ourselves that we have to fight against. When, when uh, we talk about being our own worst enemies, Lord, that, that all takes on a different meaning to each of us. And so, Lord, as 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 we figure out what it actually means to fight against this, Lord, would you set our motivation and our hope on what you could potentially do through us when we fight these things in ourselves? As we die to ourselves, Lord, would you make a whole lot of space for you to shine through? Lord, that way when we're with our friends and with our neighbors and that way when we actually work to love people and not just be nice to them, Lord, when we do all of these things that that people might in some way possibly come to know you. Lord, would you give us a heart to see that happen? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Would you stand with us, please? So we've got this Crossroads program. And these little kids are just so adorable. (laughs) They're just so adorable. And every week they look forward to hanging out together, getting some treats, (laughs) and uh, playing games. And we get a chance to just get a little bit of God's Word in their soul. Love them for Jesus' sake, yeah. (laughs) This last week I finally came back after our staycation, and I was weary. And those little kids, Miss Debbie, Miss Debbie, Miss Debbie, can we do our song? And they sing this song My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the valleys are His, the stars are His handiwork, too. Oh, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty there's nothing my God cannot do. And they're singing it from the top of their head to the bottom of their toes. And when they grow up, they're going to remember, there's nothing my God cannot do. Let's sing to